0: And welcome to the MHDD Crossroads Podcast. This week, we have a group interview brought to you by the University of Florida and Boston University's Intellectual Developmental Disability Mental Health Research Partnership. We hope you enjoy hearing from this fantastic group of people. I know we did.
1: All right, welcome to the Mental Health Crossroads Podcast. Today, we are talking to a wonderful group of people from actually all over the country, and we're going to have them go ahead and introduce themselves uh here in a minute, we're going to start with uh, Jessica Kramer. And Jessica, do you want to go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from and what you're working on?
2: Hello, my name is Jessica Kramer. I'm an occupational therapist and a researcher working at the University of Florida. And um, this group is called the IDDMH Research Partnership. That stands for Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities and Mental Health Research Partnership.
1: Fantastic, thank you, Jessica. Can we go to Ravita next? Ravita, do you want to introduce yourself?
2: So, sure. hello, everyone.
0: My name is Ravita Maraj. I am a social work pro- professional, and I work in Washington, D.C. I've been here for I've been working here for more than twenty years, and my current position is at the Association, the American Association on Intellectual and Developmental Disabilities (AAIDD) and i have been here for almost 10 years as the director for the support intensity scale programs
1: ravita thank you so much for taking the time to join our group today janet can we go to you to introduce yourself
3: hi i'm janet shouse i work at the vanderbilt kennedy center in nashville tennessee we are a university center for excellence in developmental disabilities i am the parent of a 24 year old with autism and I am the program coordinator for the IDD Toolkit, which is an online resource for medical professionals to better serve adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities.
1: Wonderful, thank you so much. And now we're to Micah. If Micah, you want to introduce yourself.
4: Hi there, my name is Micah Peace, and I'm an autistic activist and an educator at Friends School in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm a future OT.
1: Excellent. Occupational therapy. Fantastic. And then that, um, Destiny, do you want to introduce yourself?
5: Yeah, my name is Destiny Watkins. I live in Postwells, Idaho. I'm a self-advocate with lived experience. I am full wheelchair bound and struggled with physical, mental and developmental disabilities. And I live independently and travel to many different conferences and, um, present there, and I'm a a self-advocate for doTERRA, essential oils, so I'm a woman's advocate there. And I fight for um, wheelchair accessibility and ADA stuff in my local city.
1: That's wonderful. Thank you, Destiny. And I didn't recognize that you were from Post Falls. I have a good, one of my best friends lives in Post Falls, and you're not too far from Spokane, which is one of my favorite areas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm actually grew up in uh, Pocatello, Idaho.
5: Okay, so that's a couple hours away, like five
1: hours, but yeah. Yeah, (laughs) great. Thank you so much for for all of you being here and taking the time to talk with us. I'm very excited. I was telling you earlier, this has been uh, kind of what I've been looking forward to all day is this conversation. To get started, Jessica, it'd be helpful if you kind of gave the listeners a kind of broad overview of this project, and then what I'd love to do is Uh, kind of use it as a panel discussion and I'll throw out some questions and anybody that wants to chime in will kind of get your perspective on all of these things. So Jessica, if you could just give us that overview, that'd be wonderful.
2: Sure. So the IDD-MH Research Partnership uh, was formed to better understand the needs and experiences of transition age youth and young adults with IDD and who were um, having mental health challenges or mental health service users. And we were really interested in this stage of life because there's a lot of changes going on. Young adults might be um, losing uh, their social network if they're exiting school. They may be having changes in employment. They may be uh, losing friends who are graduating and moving on and they may or may not. Uh, So because of all this, we know that this is also the time of life when uh, people have their first experience potentially of mental health challenges. Uh, but there's been very little uh, literature to understand this and to under even know what the problems are and what might be needed to move that research forward. So we are a PCORI funded project and uh, the IDDMH research panel is composed of a, a range of advocates who are here uh, today as well as partnership from the ARC of the United States and self-advocates becoming empowered. Um, and we try to really get a lay of the land and then put forward some recommendations for not only research, but for practice and policy. And to get a lay of the land, the team here that we're talking to today um, developed uh, some pretty extensive methods of getting feedback and outreach. Uh, They designed an online accessible web survey, and they also conducted storytelling sessions live as well as virtual to get feedback from youth and young adults, and um, in some instances, a few family members about those needs and experiences of, of young adults. And, and we have a, we're we proud to have a report um, that's been published, and um, we hope that that can really influence not only research, but also policy and practice.
1: How did this all come together? How did, how did somebody from Post Falls, Idaho, and Kentucky, and DC, and Boston, and Florida, how did, how did this all come together that you're all on the same team? Does anybody want to talk about that?
3: I honestly don't remember how we all got in touch with each other. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say that Jessica was probably the, the
2: uh, person that made that happen. Uh, we did a bunch of outreach through um, advocacy organizations like SABE and um, ASAN, Autistic Self Advocacy Network, as well as did some outreach just to looking for people who are interested and who care about this topic to be involved. Um, so that's how we all came together.
1: So Micah and Destiny, how, how was it that you th- kind of fell into this group? What was your experience getting connected?
5: It's been quite a few years actually. I've been working with Jessica on multiple different projects through um, Boston University. I think it's been like three years and It's been so long, so I don't remember how I reached out. Um, I think it was over social media. And that's when I discovered I found a place where I fit in and I'm really good at it. And I've made a big difference.
1: Great. And Micah, how about you?
4: So for me, I really did kind of just, I didn't find it. Um, they found me, um, and if I could offer any advice to anybody else with an interest in this kind of thing, Jessica got my name just because I happened to be in a room with other autistic people and was sharing my experiences, um, and someone from ASAN gave her my name and said, hey, you might want to reach out to this person and hear what they have to say, and um, and Jessica just you know sent me an email and said hey here's what we're interested in would you like to share your experiences and it was kind of like where has this kind of work been all my life like um like Destiny said it just it felt like a perfect fit and I'm very happy to be doing this research with Jessica and the team.
1: Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to hear how this all kind of comes about because I found in my work in this area that all of these connections just kind of keep growing and we keep meeting new people and uh, I, I met Jessica on a meeting and I heard what, what she was involved with and reached out and then I'm now connected to, to all of you on this group and Ravita, I want to talk to you as well. How did, how did you become involved and kind of what is your role?
0: Well, again, you you said the magic word, networking and connections. And I believe uh, Jessica is certainly connected with AIDD, and she had reached out to uh, AIDD's CEO, executive director, who passed on the information to me, because uh, I do have uh, work experience with mental health, Uh, here in D.C. uh, for for, for a number of years, and also working with people with developmental disabilities. So it was a great fit, and I believe I spoke with, I may have communicated with uh, Jessica, and it was a a match made in heaven.
1: (laughs) Thank you. You know, you talked a little bit about, in the overview of the project, Jessica, about there was a web survey and there's been some uh, storytelling. And I'm curious if we can jump into kind of a conversation with everyone about what's been your favorite part about working on this IDD-MH partnership project. What, what have you enjoyed the most? And you know, whoever wants to go first, we'll, we'll start there. I am gonna follow that up and we're gonna talk about what's been the hardest part. So save those things for the next question, but let's talk about what's been the favorite part for each of you in working with this team, working on these kinds of projects.
3: Well, I'm always willing to go first. Um, just getting getting to work with this group uh, was, to me, the favorite thing. Um, although I also really appreciated what we were able to find out in those storytelling sessions and in the in the web survey, because I think I think it sheds some light on a, an area that an awful lot of people don't even bother to consider. Um, but this is, a, this is a great team, and I really enjoyed working with these folks.
1: Thanks, Janet. Anybody else want to go next?
3: I can.
4: Um, my favorite thing was that we were really doing something that hadn't been done before, honestly. Like, to my knowledge, no one has ever approached my community, people with IDD and mental health needs and ask, you know, what really are your experiences and what do you think about them? What feedback do you have? You know, we often get told what's what's going on with us or what to do. And um, this was has been a really nice reversal um, that I think is going to – it not only led to a lot of interesting findings, but I think that, that it set a precedent that's going to empower more people to speak out about their experiences and, um, and I really enjoyed being able to use some experiences that I had that, that weren't so great to create something good that can help other people.
1: Mike, I really appreciate what you said there. I know that in other conversations we've had on this podcast, that's one of the themes we're trying to highlight is there, there needs to be more opportunities for people with the lived experience to be able to share their voice and, and to get that out. And so we're excited to have your perspective on, on the podcast. I am. So both you and Janet mentioned findings, and I want to take a little sidetrack here. Maybe we can talk about what are some of the most interesting things you found, and then we'll come back to other people's favorite parts of this project. But when you've said findings, what, what are we talking about? What, what was standing out to you as some of the findings from this project?
4: Well, one thing that stood out to me was how, many people said that their, their doctor or their health professional had at one time or another made things worse. Um, and it didn't stand out to me because it surprised me or because it was unique. It surprised me because, or it stood out to me rather, because it was my experience and it's very telling. Um, it tells me that there is a fundamental divide between people who are providing disability services and people who are living with disabilities. Um, So these people who would say, you know, my doctor told me things that made me feel worse or the nurse disrespected me in the waiting room. Um, It tells me a lot about what these professionals think of people with developmental or intellectual disabilities, um, and about the kind of training that they get, which is not a lot. Um, and there's a very actionable change that can be made there, um, and in closing that divide. Um, so that's what stood out to me.
1: Yeah, that's that's a really powerful um, way of discussing the the divide that's between those that are receiving care and those that are providing care um, in different areas. So I appreciate that insight. Any of the rest of you wanna chime in on some of the findings that you thought stood out to you?
3: Well, one of the things that stood out to me was the fact that we had a number of folks talking about how good their experiences were. Um, As the parent of a young adult with autism, we have had a real uphill battle uh trying to find appropriate particularly mental health care for him and i talk with a lot of families who face those same issues and yet in in our findings were a number of people who said they had a great therapist who listened to them who wanted to to try to work with them and were willing to pay attention if they didn't want medications. Um, so that was really surprising. Although we certainly did hear stories, as, as Micah relayed, of not good experiences, but that, that we had so many people have positive experiences. I mean, it was great, uh, <laughs> but it was a little surprising based on what I have heard and what my family has experienced.
1: Yeah. Thanks for that perspective, Janet. I'm wondering, Jessica, uh, you know, as we talk about findings and whatnot, are there official places that folks could go or will be able to go soon to, to learn more about the findings and and hear about them?
2: Yeah, we have a paper that's been published in the Journal of Mental Health Research and Intellectual Disabilities um, that just came out and we're happy to share that link with you. Um, if you'd like to, it's 2019 and it was, um, issue 12. So I can send that link with you if you want to make it available underneath the podcast.
1: Yeah, that'd be wonderful. What we'll do is we'll include that in our show notes as a resource for folks to go look at.
2: Yeah. One of the things, and I don't, to go back to your question too, about an interesting finding. And I think that Destiny might be able to speak to this a little bit more as, um, uh, we heard that young adults, um, were very, uh, really conflicted about medication. Um, they had a lot of negative side effects and things they didn't expect to happen. And sometimes medication made it worse, although some identified once they had the right medication, it really helped them. But in contrast with, to that, many, many young adults talked about the importance and the value of alternatives to medication for managing um, how they felt and to manage their wellness. And they came up with a lot of really uh, great strategies. I know Destiny, if you wanted to add in something about that, I know this is an area that you're very interested in.
5: Yeah, thanks Jessica. Um, I would say with working on this group, it was a lot of findings didn't know their options. They weren't educated on alternatives. It was always push medications. And not a lot of people could afford it because they didn't have, like, health insurance or they struggled communicating with professionals to get the accurate help. So there was a lot of different um, barriers. And so I found that that was really interesting that people with disabilities didn't know um, their options.
1: Yeah. And I think that's something that a lot of us uh, working in this area are trying to increase the amount of information that is available to young adults, to family members, to professionals around these really important issues and, and medication and the history of over-medication in this population is a really big deal that we need to be paying a lot closer attention to. And, and, and having the young adults themselves talk about what these side effects do to them and why they would choose to either stay on a medication or go off. I know that's a, that's a big deal in people that, that I uh, love and care about their, their experience with medication. Uh, sometimes the side effects are, are far worse than any of the benefits and, mm-hmm. and what are their, their options if they don't want to stay on medications that are making them feel really poorly and uh, maybe helping some things, but also making other things worse. And so I really appreciate you starting that conversation. I'm curious, uh, Destiny, if you have a a favorite part about working on this project while we go back to that question.
5: Um, Yeah, my favorite part about working on this project was working with great people and learning from others. And based on all the conferences I've attended, traveling from Post Falls, Idaho to Washington, D.C., um, I've learned that in the conferences, they weren't always very respectful of people with disabilities. And so my favorite part was to know that I was there and I knew what was important to me and to see their their reaction, um, to know that, I was important, but they didn't really value me, but I knew I was doing a really good job and what I was there for and hoping that there was a change.
1: Yeah. How many times have you been to DC destiny at this point?
5: Um, Probably about six times now.
1: About six times. That's, that's a pretty regular trip out to, to the DC area.
5: Yes. uh, I've, became pro at traveling through the airport in a wheelchair
1: I bet I bet practice makes perfect so um, yeah yeah i as I'm listening to each of you um it's fast I, I I realize I'd love to visit with all of you individually for at least an hour and and hear your own pieces so I'm hopeful when we're done with this group conversation uh, when I reach out that maybe some of you might be willing to do a little bit just kind of a one-on-one conversation about some of your experiences in this area. And so uh, This is really great. It's like, like I said, it's the first time we've done a big group and I'm I'm wanting to hear so much more about what each of you are saying that I'm finding it hard to come back to The the next round of questions or keeping it going. But Revita, I don't want to pass. Just- yeah, go Can ahead. Can I
3: jump in right quick? Please. One of the findings that that struck me And it's one of those things that after hearing it it made perfect sense but as a parent um, we had reached a point where we felt like our son needed to be hospitalized and I'm I need to add that my son doesn't have a functional means of communication so we don't know what he's thinking or feeling other than basically behavior Um, but we had we had reached a point where we thought he needed to be hospitalized. And it was kind of like, finally, we've got him hospitalized. That, that's a huge step, that, that's gonna make everything okay. And what we heard from the self-advocates is how often a hospitalization was so terribly traumatic to them that then it, it began to make me think, what kind of trauma did we inflict on my son in in hospitalizing him? Because it became pretty clear very early on that they didn't know how to deal with him. Um, we had conversation after conversation about what kind of supports he needed in the hospital, and they just weren't equipped. Um, but that was very, that was a... a a learning experience for me. I don't know that it was surprising if I'd actually thought about it, but hearing the self-advocate stories of their trauma related to hospitalization uh, really touched my heart.
1: You know, Janet, I, I really appreciate you sharing that that personal perspective. That's a really powerful um, conversation that we are just starting to have, I think, around these areas and. And coming up against the parent and family and sibling perspective versus the self-advocate perspective and, and the professional perspective of well-intentioned things that when folks finally have a voice, it turns out that they weren't perceiving it the same way and that it was very traumatic in a lot of ways. And, and that's a hard conversation that we are just starting in this area. I've, I was part of a panel Two weeks ago, when we were talking about um, behavior analysis and experience of, of folks that identify as autistic, and you know five years ago, when I was having conversations, we weren't really talking about how that can be traumatic and and i I do uh, work in an area where there's a lot of folks that are professionals in that field and, and and do the work in that area, and I'm not, so I'm not qualified to speak heavily about that, but just to hear some self advocates. Uh, start to talk about their experience was, was very um, eye opening for me. And I've been working in this field for a while and I just took me back a minute. I said, Oh yeah, I haven't really done the work to pay attention to that perspective. I, I'm a sibling. I've worked with parents very much in my professional life. Uh, I've worked with young adults as well, which I thoroughly enjoy, but yeah, now there's this, this additional voice in the conversation that we've, largely ignored. And so, Micah, if you have anything you want to chime in on that or Destiny, uh, we'd really love to hear your thoughts on any of this.
5: So, um, I want to share our survey findings. That was 26% of young adults said they were forced to go to the hospital for mental health when they didn't want to go. And about 30% of young adults said they didn't get to choose their medications or treatment options.
1: And that's what your survey was finding. Go ahead, Micah. A
4: part Oh, I am a part of both the 26% and the 30% forced hospitalization, um, my first year of college. Um, that was actually the result of a medication that I did not want to be put on that made me extremely suicidal. Um, and for it to happen at such a um, a period in your life that's already really chaotic and confusing, like transition is hard for me in the first place, you know? Um, and and that's what I was struggling with, really, when I was hospitalized, but nobody asked me. They just asked me, well, do you have a plan? And I said, well, I, I, every time I go near a balcony or uh, an, a ledge of any kind, I just feel like i'm gonna throw myself off it like i don't know why trigger warning i'm sorry um but but i i didn't understand why i was suddenly having these really scary impulses and um i i don't even remember my therapist even really saying anything else to me after that um i just remember her picking up the phone and then campus police coming in and escorting me out, you know, in front of my peers. And when I had asked her, you know, my roommate has a car. Can she, ta- if I have to go, can she at least take me? Um, and it was like, I wasn't trusted, you know, not not only did someone not have the wherewithal to to ask me about my circumstances beyond what medication was doing. Um, but when I, I offered of myself a, a solution, a way that I could have some agency in this, um, I wasn't allowed to, and I was humiliated, and I was really, really scared. Um, and, I mean, I, I understand why my therapist did it. Um, and... My, you know, when I got to the hospital, I was able to get off the medication and get better pretty quickly, but I didn't need to be there to do that. And, and no one really explained to me why until after. And, and that's such a small courtesy that could have, could have, it wouldn't have made the experience not traumatic but it, it could have at least made it feel a little less like it was something that was just happening to me. Does that make sense?
1: It does, and I, and I really appreciate you sharing that personal perspective on, on that, such a vulnerable issue to talk about, and, and that's what we're also trying to do with this podcast is reduce stigma about talking about these personal issues and these difficult issues. Uh, there was a couple of things you said, Micah, that I want to follow up on one of them um, ties into you said you know I'm one of the 20 I'm part of the 26 percent I'm part of the 34 percent. This takes mm-hmm. me back to a, a podcast that will be released before this, which is uh, Ariel Schwartz talking about participatory action research, which is exactly what this is. It's that that value of having this lived experience part of the research team, and this real connection between just seeing the number 26% with some words after it and 34% with some words after it and having people say, and I'm part of that group. I'm part of, I'm one of those numbers that makes up that percentage, I think is, is very important to recognize. The other thing is another podcast we just did with a good friend of mine, Justin Olson, who is a self-advocate he shares kind of an example of similar, where he was in the hospital emergency room with a panic attack, and they were talking to everybody but him. They were talking to the people that brought him, and he had to say, and he says this in a delightful way, you know, I got stern with the nurse and the doctor, and I said, hey, who's in the bed? Who's wearing the gown? Talk to me. I'm the one in the bed, and I'm the one wearing the gown. And I think that goes to your point of, of just that courtesy of just some information So that this wasn't just something happening to you, but there was at least an explanation. And like you said, it's not that it would have made that less traumatic for you, but it would have changed the experience in an important way, it sounds like.
4: Yeah. Yeah. Because for the longest time, people treated me like my mental health issues were something that I was doing to them and not Mm. taking into account that I'm a person with an inner life and it hurts me too. It's hard for me too. So thanks for creating this
1: space. No, thank you for, for speaking into this space. Uh, it's, a, it's a vulnerable topic. And, and I think you're setting um, an important precedent for others who maybe have not spoken into this space before to say, if Micah can do it, if Destiny can do it, uh, I, can, I can do it as well. I can, I can work with folks like Janet and Jessica and others, and we can make this um, more of a conversation. So, so thank you for that. I am cognizant of our time. And like I said, I really would, and I'll follow up with each of you to, to talk more about some of these issues in more depth. But I am curious, uh, a couple of things. What maybe was the hardest thing about working on this project for you? And coupled with that, because it was hard, what did you learn? Destiny, did you wanna jump in?
5: Sorry, I wanted to um, go off of what Micah said before we get into this question. Um, I was also one of the percentage of people who did not get to choose um, my treatment or when I was at the hospital and due to that I that's how I became wheelchair bound Um, and they just didn't even acknowledge me at all and so it was really frustrating for me to communicate with them in the first place just because I also struggle with Um, my intellectual disability and um, so it was a combination of the both of them that um, basically if they would have listened to me and um, talked to me instead of my parents or just leaving me out of the conversation I probably to this day wouldn't be in a wheelchair
1: well thank you for sharing that destiny that's certainly uh, a really kind of a big deal for the way your life has kind of gone right um Mm -hmm. that's a really um interesting thought and i'd love to follow up with you on another conversation about that um yeah so thank you for for sharing that as well Uh, i'm just sitting here just so glad i'm getting to have this conversation i'm recognizing that this really is um what i love most about my job is really connecting with with real people with real experiences and just being human together and talking about these things. So thank you for, for giving us the, the time that you are giving us for this. Um, does anybody wanna talk about what, what was some of the hard things or what were some of the lessons learned? And and I think when we get through that, we'll probably have time for about one last question. So what are the hard things? What are the lessons that you you think you've learned from this project? So uh,
0: it's Ravita, uh, one of the things I by- would certainly say was challenging. As a professional, you are very, very, very busy. And participating, making a commitment to this project so it could be successful, you had to come into it with a very open mind, and you had to be very flexible. Um, All of us, as you said, Jeff, all of us are scattered across the United States so we're talking and we talked about this uh, different time zones for example so having to make Jessica having to make accommodations for everyone um, that was very important so everyone could participate on the call and sometimes it meant calls on the East Coast it would be late but it would be early on the West Coast for those on the West Coast to participate Um, but everyone had to just uh, make that commitment. So, so, so that, that was one of the challenging parts, I would say, in terms of the project, because that commitment to, to making it successful, making it work, um, sort of drove the success of this collaboration. And I also say, from a, as, as one of the professionals um, in the partnership, you you we talked about lived experiences of the self advocates, and it was really important. It was really an eye opener because all of the resources that were presented as part of uh, as part of the project uh, that Ariel and Jessica put together. Everything, you had to make the accommodations for those, for, 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 for others. And as a professional, it was, I found that was very interesting. And that's what I learned, that um, even though I'm, I'm used to it, but still, you know, it, 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 there was a time invested in all of this. And um, to me, it was worth it. Challenging, but worth it.
1: Thank you for that perspective, Ravita. I appreciate it. Micah or Destiny, did anything you want to talk about? Hard lessons learned, anything like that?
4: This is definitely- yeah, kind of jumping off of what um, Ravita said um, with regard to the accessibility. Um, the documentation was was the hardest, um, especially because there were a lot of. Um, Like we had the project description and informed consent and the actual survey and all these other things. And each one had to be accessible to everyone. Um, And I know what works for me and what I find accessible, but keeping different cognitive styles and cognitive abilities in mind was like really tricky. Um, it It was a skill that I had to learn to be able to like switch almost like step out of my own shoes and look at it through the eyes of like my friend, um, who has down syndrome and think, well, could he read this? Um, and so I underestimated how long it would take to get a lot of that stuff done. Um, how many meetings we would come back to, um, like down to the minute because we were still, working on the minutiae of an image so that it communicated the right idea um, and like like ravita said it turned into this really time-consuming thing but if you think about it i mean you have to eliminate that barrier to entry um, and it's so worth it
1: yeah that's wonderful um the the whole idea of it it gets really sticky when we get into the details and we can maybe think do accessibility on a couple of levels really well and especially the areas that make it more accessible to ourselves and then you have to start thinking about your friend's perspective like you said and it, and it gets a little bit trickier and a little bit trickier but so important to to spend the time to do and i'm glad that your team did spend that time to to really you know go through those images and figure out how what is this communicating and will it will this be received by others so um, that sounds like an uh, important work that you did there. Destiny, any thoughts on, on what was hard or lessons that you learned? Um,
5: yes. For me, it was doing the presentations and communicating with the professionals at the conferences. Um, it, it was most likely like they didn't expect somebody in a wheelchair because I was the only one in a wheelchair at these business conferences. And um, help developing like pictures that was very difficult but it was very important to people with intellectual disabilities and other disabilities to actually have that option of pictures with the writing so they can put it together and have a visual of what is what they are reading
1: yeah thank you for for that as well so janet or jessica any thoughts on what was hard about this project what you learned
3: Well, one thing I wanna kind of highlight or clarify, uh, we're not talking just about accessibility of the web survey or the virtual storytelling. Our actual meetings where you would normally just have a conference call and everybody would talk and whether it's a video conference call or or just a plain old phone call, uh, Jessica and Ariel made a huge commitment to talk with some of the self-advocates who might need more support ahead of time. They would send out a very detailed agenda. We would have very plain language information in the meeting that we would go through and have it visually on our screens. And then we also had CART translations going. So there were multiple avenues to make sure that our advisory council meetings were accessible to everybody and not just the end product. So that's one of the things that things, meetings that you thought were gonna take an hour sometimes took considerably longer just to make sure that it was accessible to everybody. And and that's the real value to me of the participatory nature of of the research, because the desire to be accessible started at the very get-go. It wasn't, it wasn't something added on later, and it wasn't something just for the, the end product. It was embedded in the whole project.
1: Thanks, Janet. That's a really important um, point to be making, that it's not just about accessible end products. It's about the whole process being made accessible to all participants. And that's the power. And sometimes the challenge of participatory work is that there's that extra steps that need to go, but those extra steps are an investment in what that outcome can be. So to, sh- to shortchange the, the process is to is to diminish, in my opinion, the outcomes. And so it's worth that effort. And and really, probably I'm misspeaking by calling it extra effort. It's appropriate effort is probably a better term for that. It's not extra, it's appropriate. And it's it's meaningful, and it's the whole point of all of this, right? I can see you on mute laughing. Um, So yeah, sometimes my language is a little clumsy, but I, I get there eventually. Like, yes, this is the appropriate level of accessibility and supports, not extra. So thanks for humoring me on that. Jessica, give me the last word on the the hard things or the lessons learned from you.
2: It's a great question, because to me that piece wasn't hard, right? That's what I expected of the project. And what I will say though, is we had the resources to do it, both financial resources, but but people resources um, to do it. And that's what's necessary um, to make a project like that happen. One of the things that was challenging for me, um, one of the systems that we used was um, during the meeting and after the meetings, we had a systematic vote on any decision. Um, And that vote treated every person's voice equally. Uh, And it was really hard to think about um, what we did if there was no consensus and how to balance the perspectives of um, okay, well, the research shows this, but other people are wanting this outcome or two people on the panel are, are on the team are disagreeing um, and, and providing a space um, to negotiate that and to work it out so that we did reach consensus or that people could feel okay. I don't agree with you, but I feel okay um, with moving forward. And there's some great literature out there on some things that you can do to make that happen. And I'll be honest, I didn't use any of those. So what I I was lucky because our team was so collaborative and flexible and so committed. The team is the one that worked that out. Uh, But for me, that was hard. And what I learned is that in the future, um, to really have a plan in place to deal with when people do disagree on a team and how you resolve that to keep the team moving forward.
1: Well, there's certainly from all of your responses, a lot of great advice and wisdom for others that might want to, to jump into a project like this and be involved in a more participatory projects. I am one of the things we are trying to do with our podcast is we like to end each episode. And this is not to put you on the spot at all, but we like to end each episode with a little piece of advice from our guests about one thing, one kind of concrete practical thing that our listeners could do in the next week or two that could improve the well-being for themselves or for others in their lives. And so I'll give you just a, a minute to think about what's one piece of advice that you would give to others on just how to be a healthier, happier human being.
3: Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give my my thoughts based on some work I did several years ago called the Parent Stress Intervention Project. Uh, I worked on an intervention based on positive psychology, which is Martin Seligman out of the University of Pennsylvania. And one of the exercises that he recommends to increase our happiness is each evening to think of three good things that happened that day that you can be grateful for. And they could be big things, Or they could be something as simple as, when I turn on the tap, I have clean water to drink, and I don't have to walk two miles to get clean water. And just doing that each night to think of the three things you're grateful for that day um, can really improve your well-being.
1: Thank you, Janet. That's a a great piece of advice. Uh, I had a professor that was uh, a big proponent of positive psychology, and he would start every class going around and say, What's your happy today? And uh, I adopted that uh, with my children at home around dinner time. is what's the best thing that happened to you today? Just to shift into that gratitude of there's been some pretty good things. Even if it's been a hard day, there was something that was, was okay. So thank you for that. Uh, Micah, do you want to jump in on that?
4: Sure. Um, actually, I think that some of the notes I made the other night still hold true. Um, I, one thing that people can do within the next week to make things better both for yourself and for this community is to speak up find someone that you trust or maybe it's not even a person maybe it's a blog on the internet maybe it's your own private notebook but tell someone your story trust yourself trust your gut and tell your truth. Um, Because that's how my life started to get better. That's how I found myself here. Um, That's how I found my community and my people. Um, And that's how I started to heal. And I truly believe that that speaking more about this and more openly is the only way that we're going to create a change in our culture that will bring us together to heal and to move forward in a way that includes everyone and values everyone.
1: Micah, that was so well said and so much why I like to ask this question, even if it causes folks a little bit of uh, nervous anxiety because they weren't prepared for it. um, Such powerful wisdom comes out of just asking this question to people a little bit more spontaneously. So I really appreciate everybody humoring me on that. And and Micah, that was, that was uh, wonderful. And I'm excited for our listeners to hear directly from you on that piece of advice. Um,
4: Thanks. I just want to shout out Jessica for, for having me a script for that one.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was watching Jessica's uh, face on the camera while you were speaking. It was, it was delightful in its own way. I do. I know we're, we're right at time, but I don't, I don't want to skip anybody. So Destiny, do you have a, a little piece of advice you would give folks?
5: I personally use essential oils to help calm me down or um, help support anything that I need supported with in my day-to-day needs. Um, But just have patience with um, professionals as well because they also may struggle with trying to work with a person with a disability. Um, and so it goes both ways, taking the time and patience.
1: Fantastic advice. That really is, is um, it's very compassionate advice too. Sometimes we get a little down on professionals and think they should just have this all figured out because they have this term professional, but they're just human beings having this human experience along the rest of us, and they might be really good at some of the things that they do in their profession, but yeah, we all need to kind of figure out how to listen to each other and be a little bit more kind and a little bit more patient with each other. So I really appreciate Destiny, you, you uh, suggesting folks take a look and see if they could be more patient with people that are that are in their lives from a professional standpoint. So thank you, uh, yeah. Ravita. Anything that you want to add on this?
0: Uh, sure. Just very quickly, I think just treating everyone that you encounter that that person that person has value. That person. Has something to offer, and if you if you really think of that person as someone of value, I think then it's, it becomes easier to respect that there are multiple multiple perspectives out there um, that that are different probably from your perspective, but it's so it's so important to hear other other voices and other perspectives. So it goes hand in hand, I think.
1: Absolutely, thank you for adding that that piece in. Jessica,
2: what do you think? Well, I'm gonna share some of the amazing strategies that we heard from young adults in our storytelling sessions and in the survey that they use um, to keep themselves well and happy. And that included a lot of um, relaxation strategies uh, like deep breathing and meditation, doing activities that people enjoy that are really important to them out in the community. Exercise, doing art came up a lot. Drawing, um, writing poetry. People talked a lot about the importance of spending time with pets and spending time with friends. One of my favorite quotes was someone saying that friends are the best medicine. Um, And people did recognize the value of therapy. And interestingly, another favorite of mine is people Few people said that their involvement in self-advocacy, learning up, to stand up for themselves, has helped and contributed to um, their health and their wellness. And so those are some of the things that really were the favorite things that I learned as a professional from this project.
1: Thank you, Jessica. That's a wonderful way to kind of wrap up that segment. And, and it really has been absolutely delightful to speak with all of you. We're at our time. This will be one of the longest, but probably one of the richest podcasts we've recorded so far. So I hope that the listeners appreciate uh, a little bit of the time we took to have this conversation. Uh, Thank you again so much for all of the time that you have given us and all of the work that you're all doing.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the MHDD Crossroads podcast, where we explore the intersection of mental health and developmental disabilities. Please remember to like this podcast, subscribe, listen, and share wherever you get your podcasts, and follow us on social media at mhddcenter, and our website is mhddcenter.org. We hope you're staying safe and healthy. Until next time.